Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Associated Podcast. Today I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Lois. Lois, how's it going? Hey Dundee, so, so well. I'm back from holidays, I'm feeling refreshed. I'm really excited. This is the first time we've co-hosted together, which is a momentous occasion, right? Yeah, it's really good to be in sync, finally. Where, where exactly have you been on holiday? I went to uh, southern Spain, a little town called Herculavira which is just the perfect mix of like chill relaxation and a little square to get some pan con tomate and a little, um, little cafe con leche. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm very jealous. The only uh, flights I'm getting are back to, the, back to the cold climbs of Scandinavia. So it is what it is. But on top of that, we are actually joined by another person, by a wonderful guest. Today we have Rakesh from the recently renamed Wreck-It Ventures on the line. Rakesh, how's it going? Hello, Tunday, Lewis. Good to meet you guys. Uh, very well, thank you. Unlike, unlike yourself, I came back from holiday maybe three weeks ago, so uh, none of that holiday glow left, I'm afraid. But, uh, but still hanging in there. It's a wonderful summer, and we're having an interesting uh, year in the Ventures team. Amazing. Where did you get away to, Rakesh? Oh, as you know, this year, the, the choices are relatively limited, so we've been trying to figure out the unexplored parts of the world. So we went to the east coast of Latvia in the Baltics. That was, a, that was an interesting uh, interesting uh, holiday for sure. It's one of the few parts of the world where I think, uh, forget COVID, I think even uh, the European Union has not really reached. So it was, a, it was really a remote holiday. No internet signal, no phone signal. So it was really off the, off the grid. Wow, that's amazing. I can safely say that is probably the most surprise I've ever been at someone's response to where have you been away? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah like, believe it or not, that is almost exactly how we found a place to go. What is the remotest, strangest place we could go? Well, glad that you're back and you're um, on the podcast with us today. Maybe to kick off, it would be good to hear a bit about how you got to where you are today, Rakesh. So how did you end up at Wreck Adventures and a bit about your life story? Sure, today. So I don't know if it's much of a life story, but I can, I can give you a quick, uh, quick summary of what we've been up to. So I am originally from, from India and uh, grew up around the world. My, my parents used to be expatriates and you know, moved countries every, every few years or so. And you know, in, in course of that, I came to the UK for the first time in 2008 when I came here for university and since then have, have lived in, in the UK, in, uh, in China, in, in India, in Ireland, uh, in the US and, and now back in, in the Netherlands and now back in, back in London. I joined Racket uh, straight out of university, you know, in 2012 as a, as a uh, uh, at the time it was called the graduate program uh, when, you, when you started your first career out of, out of school. And since then, I've sort of worked on a lot of the record brands. Record, for those of you who don't know, is the company that makes uh, Durex, Neurofin, Dettol, Lysol, and all sorts of consumer product brands. It's the fifth largest FTSE company in, uh, in, the, in London. And uh, I work uh, in the ventures team in the, in the company. And what we do in the ventures team is essentially find new next generation brands and startups. 
you know, in the consumer good space. Uh, it can be in consumer health, it can be in consumer hygiene or in nutrition. And we invest in those startups with the idea of finding interesting brands and businesses, but also because, you know, we're after interesting entrepreneurs and, you know, really the leaders of the, the next generation in the, in the consumer goods space. So that's what, that's what the Ventures team does in Racket. I've been running the team for just shy of two years, again, out of London, though the team are scattered across the, across the world. And uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been an interesting uh, adventure so far. Before Racket, I also spent some time with the Boston Consulting Group, a BCG uh, in, in London, and as part of their digital ventures division. So I've been in the space of digital ventures and startups, uh, you know, for just shy of a decade now. Amazing. Thank you. I mean, that was definitely a whistle-stop tour, wasn't it? I get the feeling that there are lots of details that you've skipped over (laughs) (laughs) in in that. But um, maybe to start with, I can take you back to the beginning when you first joined Reckitt. I'm kind of interested in, and, and I think some of our listeners will be too, in what what kind of motivated you to, I suppose, apply and get a role at Reckitt? Clearly a company that is absolutely enormous, but maybe isn't one that people tend to have heard of. So what was the inspiration behind that? Yeah, um, this is a, it's a good question. Um, believe it or not, like, uh, like a lot of uh, people from South Asia, uh, when I went to university, I read uh, engineering. And, you know, once the only thing I learned in four years of engineering was that I was not a particularly good engineer, <laughs> you know, uh, and after that, uh, you know, I was, I was trying to figure out what it is that I enjoy doing. And one thing that I definitely enjoyed part of my course, but also elsewhere, is the tangibility of consumer products. You know, I, I've always loved branding and marketing and advertising and uh, that space quite a lot. So I think exploring where I wanted to go with my career I had three choices, really. I, had, I could either go down and be an adverti- join an advertising firm. I could go down and join a, you know, a consulting firm like Kinsey and the likes. Or I, wanted, I could go into a consumer goods uh, and consumer brands firm. And I chose the, chose the third option. And believe it or not, as a, as a 22-year-old, that choice came down to just one very simple thing. Which company let me travel the most? When I applied to all three um, I got an offer from Racket which said, "Hey, look, we don't we don't have a we don't have a job for you in the UK, but we have one in Qingdao. And Qingdao, for those of you who might not know, is a, is a country where they host the Winter Olympics in China. It's just in the border towards uh, it's right next to Korea, and is a super interesting city to to live in. So that was my first real job, if you would. I packed up my small suitcase and moved from London to Qingdao and worked there for a good year and a half. So that was my only only reason for how I how I got started. So I love the tangibility of consumer goods and I got an opportunity to travel, put them together. I was working in uh, on Durex in China uh, straight after school. Okay. In terms of, I suppose, leading on from travel, um, you mentioned that you, you head up the, the Global Ventures team. And so you do that from London, but actually you must you must have influence all across the different offices that Reckitt has. Could you tell us a bit about how that manifests in terms of the investing? What you know, where do you invest? What's the remit? Uh, it's a good question, uh, Lewis. So where we invest tends to be, you know, where essentially in very simple terms, where Reckitt plays. So Reckitt plays in consumer health. So you think about brands like Strepsils and Neurofin and brands like that. We play in consumer hygiene, so things like Dettol and Finish and Vanish and these kinds of brands. 
and then nutrition, which is a business we specifically run in the US. Um, now, we therefore venturing and investing into small brands usually happens across these three spaces. Now, by the nature of us being based in London, most of our investments tend to be either European or American, uh, which is also where most of the venture activity has been quite, quite you know, active and there are lots of new startup brands coming. Having said that, we've also made a few investments in Asia, particularly in India. You know, we've more, more recently invested in the Bombay Shaving Company, which is one, in, one of India's success stories as a startup. So in, in small doses, we've also invested in, in Asia, but really the bulk of our effort has been in the US and Europe. And from that, I get a sense that Reckit invests quite a lot more in you know, physical consumer products than most other venture funds. Do you see a lot of competition in and around the venture deals that you're doing, or is it a kind of open field for you? Oh, I wish it was an open field and that that would be an ideal day. But unfortunately, you know, the consumer goods and the consumer brand space is super competitive. And we see competition from two or three types of companies. You see a lot of competition from venture capital, you know, traditional venture capital, which, of course, in the consumer brand space is very active in the US, particularly. We see competition from corporate venture capital, you know, CVCs, essentially, where big companies like ourselves are looking to invest in small brands. And then now, more recently, you also see quite a lot of institutional investors and angel investors also playing in the space. So high net worth individuals and family offices also investing in consumer brands. So it's it's quite competitive, the consumer uh, brand investment space. And I think a lot of it is to do with, with the tangibility of it. It's a little bit like the old Warren Buffett saying of investing in things you can understand. And the good thing about consumer brands is everybody understands it. You know, if you sell supplement food, then you know what it is. Everybody gets it. There's nothing deeply sort of specific about it, uh, which of course is not the case in fintech and, you know, ad tech and things like that. So it's, it's a competitive space, but it's also worth saying that we invest in non-consumer brand uh, companies as well. So, for example, we invested in direct-to-consumer technology companies, in a few ad tech companies and spaces like that, uh, though that tends to be maybe you know, 30% to one-fourth of our investments. That tends to be uh, our remit, but yeah, it's a very competitive space. Okay. In terms of the, the thesis and what the usual terms of your deals are, like, do you have any constraints or, or is Reckit such a huge corporate backer that you kind of have free reign to do enormous deals all the time? I always wish, Lewis, that my answer to, to your questions were the latter. Unfortunately, we don't, we don't, we don't have a, a free wish of whatever we want to invest in. I think with the way we invest in our thesis tends to be investing in, in companies which can be truly global and can scale quite a bit. I think that's one. And the second big thing, you know, when, since we started, has been investing in purpose-led brands and brands which are very lean forward when it comes to sustainability. That's been actually one of the reasons we launched the Ventures division was that you look at the space of sustainability and purpose-led brands, really the cutting edge brands are the new age brands versus the old brands who are trying to sort of evolve into a sustainable brand, which is why we wanted to meet these investors, to meet these entrepreneurs and these brands and try and invest in them. So I think we definitely have a, have a strong sort of belief in what we want to invest in and almost a very strong set of values which we're keen to sort of uphold when we make investments. 
from a size of check and an investment space point of view, we've done investments as small as sort of $50,000 and all the way up to, you know, $25, $30 million. So it tends to be quite broad, uh, though the bulk of our work tends to sit in seed and series A, so which is where our sweet spot really is. So that's, that's in terms of the size. Uh, and probably the third and maybe the most important point is most of the companies, if not all of the companies we invest in, tends to be where Racket as a big multinational can add value to these small startups. And, you know, believe it or not, that's actually very hard to do. Um, the, one of the sentences I always tell the startups when we meet them is, you know, we have no idea what good help looks like to you. And you have no idea what questions to ask us. And, you know, we spend a little bit of time, almost a month or two courting just to figure out if we can find those answers. You know, you have big companies going to startups and saying, hey, look, we can help you with digital marketing. We can help you with, you know, e-commerce. And the, real- the reality is like these small companies can do digital marketing, e-commerce, et cetera, a lot better than the big companies can do. So there's very little, you know, big companies can add to them. On the flip side, when it comes to you know going to new markets, thinking about manufacturing, thinking about R and D spaces like that, you know, small companies really struggle, and we try and help them. So usually, the companies we invest in is where you know there is very clear how can we help you, and where where we can answer that question in a in a meaningful way. Otherwise, we found you know it's not a, it's not a really a two way relationship. So that's that tends to be the mandate. You Mm. I'm really interested in what you said about sustainability and that being one of the key reasons that the venture fund was spun up. Do you think you could tell us a bit more specifically what exactly is it that Reckitt hopes to achieve by investing in innovative earlier stage companies that presumably have sustainability kind of built into their DNA? Uh, Absolutely. So one of the companies we've invested in is a company called Bauer Collective. Now Bauer Collective are a eco-friendly marketplace in the UK and you know they launch a lot of their own products but also have you know brand products from other brands which are certified highly sustainable and are considered essentially creme de la creme of the sustainability one in in consumer goods now we invested in Bauer Collective for a couple of reasons one you know Racket ourselves we're on a journey to figure out hey look we sell billions of dollars Work the products every year, and you know have have a ma- major impact in the world in terms of people's lives. So in those products we sell, how can we be carbon neutral? How can we be plastic free? You know how how do you go about that journey? One and two, how do you talk to consumers about those things in a meaningful way? Like let me give you a simple example. If you look at black colored plastic packaging, black is actually one of the few colors. Where your your eco eco footprint can be quite low. So when you have painted colors of plastic, it's actually almost a very good gauge of if it's recyclable or non recyclable. So black, but historically black has been associated with the black bin bags, which people think are super unsustainable. So how do you communicate this with consumers? And startups have a very good way of being close to consumers and therefore being able to do that very well. And I think that's a big thing we can learn. Authenticity is another, right? Like how do you come across to your consumers in a, in a meaningful one-to-one way and how do you learn to be like that? So there's a lot of things we, we learn from the folks at Bauer. Um, and the same way on the flip side, you know, 
Bauer, of course, are a small company, and when they want to look at new technologies or new ma- new materials to use for sustainability, one of the answers they get from big suppliers is, "Hey, you have to order millions of dollars of units. Otherwise, you know, we can't give you our product because we- the sustainable companies are also quite small." Um, so we help them get the scale and leverage things like that, which also helps them. Or if they want to think about circularity, like how do you build a circular economy? There's no point being in an eco-friendly we work and you know everybody wearing sort of you know, very sustainable hoodies and t-shirts when your products are made in China have to be flown over to the US to be sold. Like you you destroy your entire eco footprint like that. So how do you do that in a in a in a meaningful way and how do you create a, a circular economy through that? I think things like that, how to think big picture holistic, we help them with. So I think that's where the value exchange really comes and you know lots to learn uh, for both the sides of the uh, both sides of the the investee companies and for and for us awesome and slightly switching tack to another unique feature of racket ventures is that you're a corporate venture firm how how does that influence how the startups interact with you and and perhaps how how you interact with with the startups it's an interesting question because it's a question we've asked ourselves quite a, for quite a long time and I've spent time trying to figure out hey look what does it mean to be Racket's venturing division and venturing arm I think you know if I could recrescent Racket VC I would probably call it venture collective rather than venture capital and the reason I say that is because all of the investments we make the financial returns of those investments actually are slightly lower in terms of why we invest in it if you're a traditional vc firm you know the only thing that you're motivated by is irr you know what you, what returns do you make and how does your financial stack up i think when a corporate company and a large one invests in, in startups i think it almost always tends to be partnership led and i think that's where we've spent a bulk of our, our time and effort figuring out how to how to create uh, create value for the for the startups but also transparently value for racket as well so you know um one of the companies we invested in is called oxwash and oxwash is crescent the the ocado of laundry by uh, by the times recently and oxwash works with banish which is one of our brands in the uk and they are you know together trying to solve a problem around fast fashion right like you know fast fashion is it destroying the world it creates a lot of pollution and and waste uh, which is unnecessary and what oxwash does is do sustainable laundry and what vanish does is to help people have clothes for a longer time so they have a higher vision which is shared and i think the two two companies one big one small come together and you know they've been doing some really cool interesting things which racket would never be have been able to do ourselves and oxwash wouldn't get the scale to do it without without vanish so it's really those kinds of deals which is the sweet spot and i think that's where the ceo the corporate venture capital really really helps to have the big muscle of like a you know a 10 billion dollar company behind you has been has been a big big part of our sweet spot and given that racket is is so brand focused how do you manage to keep all of the kind of individual brands like that brand portfolio in your head when you're looking at startups because i mean if you think about banish you know that corresponds quite well with oxwash but when you meet another i don't know consumer brand startup how do you kind of remember oh damn we own we own something in that industry and like do that matching process and how do you stay on top of it 
Yeah, look, it's easy because I don't think Racket has a very simplistic portfolio. We have about 20 big brands, you know, um, and it's one of the things the company has historically been very successful at doing, right, is, is you know, keeping a few number of very, very successful brands instead of lots and lots of little, little brands. And the, and the benefit of that is when we invest in startups, it's almost always obvious which brand they can partner with. So Vanish with Oxford is a good example. There's a few others, like there's a company called Shine Bathroom in the US, which we invested in who are partnering with Harpic uh, and things like that. So I think we have a small portfolio and that helps. I think the second part of uh, the answer today is perhaps, you know, sometimes there is no immediate brand that links to these startups, but there is a division or a part of record which links to the startup. So sometimes it's R&D, right? Like we have an R&D division, which is quite big and they have lots of factories and R&D research centers. And that has an affinity with a business which is, which is working well. So sometimes the, the link is towards a function or a capability rather than to a brand. So if you put capabilities, functions, brands, like all on a page, then it's, 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 it's easy to link every startup to something meaningful. Um, and the other thing I would say is, you know, we've been quite diligent about not investing in too many of the same things. For example, you know, once now that we've invested in Oxfosh, we aren't out there sort of looking to invest in lots and lots of laundry servicing companies. Uh, the idea is like, you know, pick a few people you want to partner with, help them do well and help them win in the market versus the old analogy of everybody who's invested in Uber is also invested in Lyft has also invested in Grab. And that's not the idea. The idea is to like pick a one or two people who you really want to back and then just back them on the way. And what's the process like for finding those companies? Because I guess really important, as you said before, to have that, you said there's that sweet spot, there's those deals where they just work. There's like something in it for both parties. I work for CVC as well, so I really hard identify with that. And, you know, it can make it difficult to source those deals. So I'm just curious, what's what's your process or top tip for doing that? Uh, top tip, um, uh, two top tips maybe. Let the people who know how to do it, do it. If you can't let them do it, hire them into the company. And, and you know, that's, that might be the way. The, the way we started was we started with our partners at Founders Factory. So for, for those of you who might not know, Founders Factory is a large accelerator and a venture studio in London. And, you know, we've been working with them for over two and a half years, uh, really to, to source some of these startups. So a lot of our initial deals came via that team were obviously extremely well-networked into the VC industry. More recently, I would say maybe the last sort of year, year and a half, we've started to build a good reputation with those startups and therefore are getting a lot of inbound deal flow as well. And I think, you know, Lewis, one of the things I would say is it's a mistake I have made myself is get a bit too obsessed with the deal flow and, and forget about the portfolios that have, we've already invested in. And when you spend a bulk of your energy and time actually creating value for the existing portfolio, that gives you a very good reputation because startups talk to each other all the time. Entrepreneurs are like super well connected. They know each other very well. And usually that network has been very powerful for us. So now a lot of our deal flow comes from recommendations. And, you know, recommendations where people say, hey, look, these guys invested in us, yes, but they've helped us quite a lot. You guys should consider it as well. I think that helps. And the fact that we've been very 
values focused per se, sustainability, B Corp, et cetera, has also been helpful in the sense where, where we've had no space in the cap table. People come up to us and say, look, you're one of the very few CBCs who's talking about B Corp. Okay, we'd love to have you guys on the cap table. Are you interested? So I think creating value for your existing companies and standing for something, it can be anything really, but something I think really helps. And is there a sense in which when talking to some of these these companies, you maybe have to overcome any form of fear or stigma of like a conflict of interest? And how do you navigate that? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a question I, I get quite quite often. And it's also a problem we face like you know, every single day. So usually startups are scared of two or three things, right? One is, hey, I've got a brilliant idea. I'm talking about it to a big company. They're going to steal my idea and run away. Problem number one. You know, worry number two is going to be, hey, a big corporate has invested in us. It means we'll never be able to raise funding from anybody else. Why wouldn't they always just invest in us and acquire us one day maybe? Uh, so that tends to be fear number two. And three, you know, the classic fear, which is big companies are slow. We're going to get stuck in a lot of red tape. It's not going to be very agile, very easy to work with, etc. So those tend to be the three big fears. And without fail, in almost every call, I get asked this question. Right. So I think talking about them one by one, maybe the last one is the easiest to fix. My team and uh, a lot of, lot of our network have come from the VC world. And therefore, since the day we started, we made a commitment saying from the day we meet a startup within 100 days, we would, if we decide to invest in them, we would have cash in the bank. Right. So the process we run is very lean. And in 100 days, we complete the deal. So that's three months, which is, you know, super competitive for a, uh, for a VC, but more, most importantly, very competitive for a, for a CVC for sure. So as, as they work with us, they'll also only see two or three people in the team. You know, they don't have to go through sort of hundreds of people in the, in the big company or anything like that. And, and the process has been diligent, uh, has been structured in such a way where diligence is quite light touch. It's focused on individual entrepreneurs you know, massive valuations and financial models and things like that. So I think that's the first one. We have a process and mostly a promise to be very agile and sort of keep things in 100 days. The second fear of a big company will sort of steal our idea and run away. I think this is the big one. And I always encourage sort of founders to also think about it. First, I think when founders come to talk to corporates, they have to be clear in their own mind, like, why do you want to get an investment from a, from a corporate company? You know, and as, as I'm sure you guys know, there are financial investors and there are strategic investors. We fall clearly into the camp of the second one where we're a strategic investor. And you know, if you as a founder think there is a capability that you don't know about, there is R&D, there is supply chain, there is retail that you need help with, then you go to a strategic investor versus just cash. And I think... When you do that, you already sort of make it very clear that, look, this, this is what we're here for. This is what you guys are missing. This is what we need help with. I think that that makes things a lot more simple. And, you know, we also treat every, every sort of deal very, very confidentially. And even when startups don't sign an NDA, I ask them in our first call to make sure they put an NDA and sort of be very clear that what's yours is yours, what's ours is ours, and no one's talking to anyone about it and just give them peace of mind about it. And I think the third thing is, if a, co- a corporate invests in us, hey, we're never going to be able to fundraise. This, you know, again, it's a myth, really. 
because as long as you make it clear to your investors that we're taking an investment from a corporate company because we want strategic advice and you get the corporate company in this case us to you know also back that statement and you know lots of times i've spoken to vcs myself telling them hey look we've invested in these guys we are interested in them from a learning agenda from a strategy agenda but you know you guys should invest in them because they are they're excellent companies i think that's that also helps sort of these companies fundraise into the future so when you look at corporate venture capital i think the the summary is find companies who are really interested in being your partner versus interested in just being your investor and i think if you can find that you know you you're you're up for success presumably there's there's something in in your team needing to be able to do that for reckit too so having people on the team who are able to identify when companies would make good partners for reckit because the impression i get is that it's not so difficult perhaps for founders to identify what they would do with reckit given the opportunity but what might be harder is for reckit to understand what's feasible what's desirable those kind of things so i'm just curious you said a couple of things um that make me curious about the makeup of the team you mentioned bringing people in who know what they're doing you also mentioned that you've been at reckit with the grad scheme i'm just curious what journey did you have at reckit before starting to lead the venture team and what experience did you gain that put you in a good position to be able to do that and who are the people that you've brought in yeah so um i think the second question uh, perhaps is the easiest so our our team comprises of a folks who have come from three backgrounds one traditional sort of corporate brand building background two folks who've worked in true venture capital uh, particularly from a legal due diligence finance etc point of view where they know how to run a deal quite quickly and 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 consistently and three co- folks who've got experience in partnerships per se and you know have spent most of their careers looking at how can big companies work with small ones how do you you know put you know an adidas and uh, and uh, all birds together and how do you create partnerships with each other and things like that so part, that's that's the composition of our team i think that's that's also help, that's been very helpful and i would say lois the other thing we have in the team which has been helpful is our sponsorship at record has been all the way up to the c suite so a lot of our c suite members uh, are mentors to these startups are sometimes board members in these startups uh, and and get a lot of access and visibility to this team which has been quite unique i mean it's been great from from the the, the startups point of view in the sense that you know you get to call up the cmo of hopefully uh, and ask for advice which which you don't really need to do every day uh, one of our startups have just actually spent a day shadowing our ceo again kinds of things you would never have access to in 99% of the companies so we've created access at that level which has been super helpful for for a lot of our startups i would also say to your question on on my background i spent my time doing you know two things one doing brand building so I, i've worked now on neurofin lysol datol gavascon quite a few of rackets uh, consumer goods brands and i've also worked in marketing and e-commerce for for a good part of my career and then the other part of what i spend my career doing is is consulting so you know when you work in uh, in, in in strategy consulting at at bcg and um, you spend a lot of time figuring out hey look how do you create value for clients in a very short period of time 
you know, that's what really consult the whole consulting industry is about. And in some ways, that gives you a very good service mindset. And a lot of my team is designed like to, to think like that, which is we're in the service of the startups. And, you know, even though we're investors, how do you create value for them? And I think that mindset has been, has been helpful, certainly for me in my own job, but also I think as an extension for my team. I think that was a, a really, a really comprehensive answer. One, one question which is still bugging me is that there, there are a lot of corporate venture arms out there, e- even within like, you know, verticals like consumer, consumer packaged goods as well. What would you say makes Reckit, makes Reckit unique? I think there's, uh, there's two things I would say today. I think one we touched upon, which is the service mentality, which we have, and the access, therefore, we give to C-suite and, you know, the access to all of our capabilities and things like that, which is, I believe, quite unique in, in the industry. I would say eight out of our 10 startups have met the record CEO, which is, you know, unheard of uh, in, in most CVCs. But I think the most tangible differentiator thing I, I also think is the fact that we are en route to become the world's first CVC that is a B Corp. Um, you know, there has never been a corporate venture capital that's done that. We've already got B Corp pending status as of a few months ago, and we're just in the process of completing our first year to be, you know, accredited B Corp. So once we once we get that, we would be the world's first CBC, who's a B Corp, which I think is a is a is a meaningful statement of our belief in sustainability and really triple bottom line companies. But it's also an invitation for startups to who are in that space to come join us. So that's that's two things I would say are quite unique. Amazing. We have a lot of listeners who are interested in entering the world of venture. Are Reckit kind of looking at new applicants right now? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're always looking for new applicants and, you know, you guys are very welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn or email or whatever you see fit. Usually when we look for applicants, we we look for two things. Also worth saying is, you know, folks who have a very big heart and passion for sustainability and purpose. And second, folks who are big fans of numbers. Financial acumen is always, uh, always a wanted skill. Uh, so those two things, if, you, if you've got both of those and you think you're excellent at both of them, then please definitely reach out to us. I just got small flashbacks of the investment bank. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it is what it is. And, well, you went to the investment bank today. Uh, yeah, you know, three, three years of my life down the... I mean, it was, it was useful. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, just, you know, how, how do people get in contact with you? I think the easiest way to reach out uh, reach out to me is, uh, is probably via LinkedIn. So, you know, you can look up Rakesh Narayana. I don't think there are that many Rakesh Narayanas. Literally, there are lots of Rakeshes. It's a common Indian name, but uh, maybe not Rakesh Narayanas in London doing venture. So, uh, yeah, by all means, reach out to me on LinkedIn and we can have a conversation. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Rakesh. It's been really interesting, I think, that you know, it's always cool to have people on the podcast from different types of fund, um, and particularly when they talk about the things that drive them. And I think we really got to the to the nub of kind of you know why you do what you do for Reckon. It's been really inspiring. So appreciate your time. 
No problem. Thank you very much for uh, for having me on. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to Associated. Uh, remember that you can get updates on the latest guests and episodes on Twitter. We're at Associated underscore pod. And if you want to email us with any feedback or ideas for future guests, then please do so. Um, we're on associatedpodcast at gmail.com. So until next week, please do uh, subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating wherever you're listening to your podcast, whether you're on Apple or Spotify, anywhere really does help us and we really appreciate every rating. So thank you so much. We'll see you next week.